this opportunity gap and the pay gap starts becoming increasingly more problematic one to two years after a woman has a child. And that's because there is no support system for her, for a woman who wants to be both working and a caregiver. Our society understands women when they're in a 100% caretaking role. Our society understands women when they're in a 100% working role, but they have not yet figured out how to understand women who want to tackle both of those with equal passion. And so flexibility is the way to achieve that. This is Women Killing It. Each week, women who are killing it in their careers share their stories and advice for making it in today's working world. Your host is Sally Hubbard. Today's guests are Anna Auerbach and Annie Dean, the co-founders and co-CEOs of Work. That's Work, W-E-R-K. Anna and Annie, you are both killing it. Thanks for being on my show today. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for having us. We're trying to be killing it. (laughs) I'd love to hear more about Work. Could you tell us about what the company does and what inspired you to create it? Absolutely. So we have a theory, and we believe that the women's leadership pipeline is broken. 30% of women who are talented are opting out of the workforce, and 70% of those women actually say they'd still be working if they had flexibility. So we think that flexibility is the lowest cost, highest impact tool that companies can use to recruit, retain, and advance talented women. And we know actually through our research that women care more about flexibility than they care about any other element of the job search. They care about it more than their title, more than their compensation. Um, And this is sort of about pushing women's equality to the next place where we can finally say as a society that we value caregiving equally with ambition. So what work does is it's a marketplace um, and a platform where women who are looking for real career-building jobs to find work that is also flexible. We're not talking about the gig economy here. These are not projects. They're real jobs with institutional support, promotion ability, and fair pay. So what we're doing is trying to give women the access to top flexible jobs and to normalize the conversation around flexibility. Do you want to talk about, Anna, why we started the company? Yes, specifically for us, we both are extraordinarily ambitious women. For us, when we graduated college, there was no question that, you know, we could have the careers that we wanted. You know, we both really felt as though, what feminist movement? We thought thought we lived in a post-feminist world and that, you know, whatever we wanted to do, we could accomplish. And pretty quickly, I think we both realized that that wasn't exactly the case. For me personally, I saw so few women leaders at the tops of companies where I was working, and it was just not a very inspiring experience as a young woman. I always knew I wanted kids. I always knew I wanted to work, and it was so hard when you didn't see those role models. And for Annie, I think one of the challenges was once she had her first child, it was impossible to maintain things like 16-hour work schedules, working overnight. These are just not reasonable things for women to do. And actually, Annie and I had both tried to do an 80% schedule and failed miserably at it. And I think a lot of women do fail at those schedules and then either entirely opt out of the workforce or go back to full time. And that's because the institutional support is just not there. So for us, one of the reasons for founding this company is we ourselves did not feel as though there were ambitious career options out there that allowed women to equally balance caregiving and career. For example, at this point in my life, you know, obviously we have a startup and that's no joke with a toddler running underfoot. But I also want to be very cognizant about travel. So if I were looking for, you know, a regular job not leading the startup, there'd be no site today where I could filter for a job that has minimal travel. And that is not a challenge just for us. It's a challenge 
for 20 million women like us. And it's actually completely unacceptable that there isn't a solution today. And so when Annie and I didn't find that solution, we decided to make it ourselves. And I think there's a real generational impact here because we're looking at millennials, and Anna and I basically barely scoot by as millennials. We're going to look this segment of them. But we sort of went into the workforce, and when we recognized how steep the path to leadership would be for us after we had children and how unfair that felt, we realized that we needed to make new rules um, and that we weren't going to play by rules that didn't work for us. So we actively did a macro and micro analysis of what the market looks like. Why are women not getting to leadership? What is it that's holding them back? And how can we stop positioning this as something where we continue to put the onus on women? So I think a lot of the advice out there today for women looking to get into leadership roles is, you know, find a mentor, lean in, be more mindful, meditate, Organize your school, the, the school drop-off. Organize your lunches with other services and outsourcing. But the reality is we can't su- succeed or have it all or do it all in environments that aren't designed for our success. And we need to be unafraid to rewrite the rules to um, look more successful and to create futures that we want to participate in. I have to say, I also tried that 80% schedule, and I did that for a few years. And I was already at that point at a pretty family-friendly job. I had left the big law firm. I didn't last very long at a big law firm, and I was working at the state attorney general's office. So it was already a a more family-friendly hourly schedule, but the 20% reduction in my pay... (laughs) really made no sense because I was doing the same job. I was just squeezing it into um, 20% less time. And actually, I was very stressed out because I was always so time pressured. I felt like I was just a machine, but I was getting paid 20% less than my male colleagues, and I was doing more work than many of them. (laughs) So how do you find these jobs? Are you partnering with companies, or how do you find these jobs that can give flexible arrangements uh, for ambitious women. Well, so what's really interesting about the story you shared, it's, it's really the same story that Annie and I had as well, and I think so many other women do too. The research actually shows that you're much more successful in a part-time or flexible role if you go in with that pre-negotiated instead of transitioning from a 100% role to asking for the flexibility because both for yourself and for the work environment around you, it's hard to change the expectations of kind of how you're working The other challenge to some of the flexibility um, is that today a lot of companies see the the part-time programs or flexibility programs as a lifestyle perk akin to a gym membership. And it's really not. We're we're, we're really trying to educate companies and our members around the fact that flexibility is actually a strategic solution to a systemic problem, and it's just good for business. And it's sort of at the crossroads of what millennials want and what women need around the time that they're having children. And so to your question around how we work with companies, you know, first and foremost, we do approach companies that are already places that have flexibility policies or have something in place. Um, that's actually easy because 80% of companies today actually have some sort of flexibility policy in place. They don't always publicize it. They don't always use it strategically. And so that's where we come in is we educate them on the importance of having flexibility as a way to keep women in the workforce and as a way to get women through and up through the leadership pipeline. 
And when companies hear how qualified our membership is and how phenomenal they are, I mean, they're frankly willing to do anything to get women that are as talented as the women we have. Uh, and, so, and so in a way, we actually solve a lot of their broader recruiting problems in terms of getting qualified people into jobs. But the social angle has been our end with every company. You know, almost every company we've talked to is just really passionate about advancing women. They just haven't figured out what's broken. And that's because I think there's still men in leadership, and we're helping them figure out why women are just dropping out and not getting to those highest levels. One thing that I think is really interesting is this, the, the gender pay gap has gotten so much attention recently, finally, is that, you know, there's a woman um, at Harvard who studied the gender pay gap for years and we love you. Um, we love, we love that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we cite this all the time. Yeah. And, 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 and how she says that it's all about wanting temporal flexibility, right? That's the main reason for, for the gender pay gap is that the jobs that have temporal flexibility pay less. Right. Are, is part of your goal to make those jobs that are more flexible, not actually lower paying? We kind of view that study, one of the most important things that we took from it is that we really like to categorize the issue for women in our segment as an opportunity gap versus a pay gap. And we think that when women are given equal opportunities to leadership, that ultimately that weighted average gets higher and and veers towards equality. So you see one woman in the partnership at law firms today. If you saw 50% women in law firm partnerships, you would see the pay gap vastly skewed towards equality. Um, but the reality is, like, there's a real problem here. So as a society, we're okay with giving women maternity leave. We're not quite there yet, but we're getting there. But we see that this opportunity gap and the pay gap starts becoming more, increasingly more problematic one to two years after a woman has a child. And that's because there is no support system for her, for a woman who wants to be both working and a caregiver. Our society understands women when they're in a 100% caretaking role. Our society understands women when they're in a 100% working role, but they have not yet figured out how to understand women who want to tackle both of those with equal passion. Um, and so flexibility is the way to achieve that. So, you know, I recently spoke to a woman who was negotiating flexibility for herself and she wanted to talk about the most effective way to position it. And I said, you know, you always need to make this argument in terms of it being a business advantage for the company um, and a business advantage in terms of your optimization and productivity. But do not say that you will take a pay cut because, you know, there is no reason if you are able to better optimize your schedule and perform the same amount of work in, the, in a shorter amount of time that you should be working at a 20% discount to the company. Um, and I think that that's going to be an increasingly important conversation as companies realize how strategic and low cost it is for them to implement flexibility. Um, and, you know, ultimately we're going to start recognizing that that opportunity gap and the fact that women are consistently pushed off of the leadership track and the promotion track and the salary and raise track um, because they are not able to fundamentally be both a working woman and a mother, then things are going to begin shifting in a positive direction. And I think this is just going to take time. I, I think, you know, the stats that you said today is unfortunately we penalize flexibility programs and flexibility attributes and jobs, and sometimes those jobs pay less. That being said, that's not always true. And so one thing we're seeing with some of our companies, particularly, you know, I think it's more the younger companies, the startups, the more innovative tech companies. A lot of these companies are founded on fully remote programs. So, like, I'll just call out one of our company partners is Buffer. 
the social media management tool, they actually came to us and the majority of their workforce is remote. And it's not that the people who are remote make any less than if that job is in person. That's just how they've built up the company. And so I think as we have particularly a whole new wave of startups and really innovative companies and caring companies coming up through the ranks, I think this will start to change. But it's absolutely going to take time because we have to completely change mindsets around the fact that just because somebody is not physically there from 9 a.m. to 10 p.m. Monday through Friday does not mean they're not doing a good job. Um, but the great thing is I think we're at the beginning of a title shift. And, I, you know, there's a lot of conversations around women in work. There's a lot of conversations about generally the future of work and the idea of good work versus good jobs. And so I think what's wonderful is that we can be part of this rising tide um, and help to shape a better world for the future. Quick question, guys. Have you joined my email community? I share all kinds of tips from the amazing women that I interview on how to kill it in your career. My emails are all about us working together to maximize our career results and our happiness. So we're filling the mentoring gap for women and we are lifting each other up. When you sign up today, I'll send you some awesome emails, including my seven step action plan to killing it. To sign up, just text all one word, killing it to 38470. That's 38470. Zero and the word to text with no spaces is killing it. Now back to the show. It seems that a big part of the problem are companies not really being adept at being able to measure results. You know, what we they should right. care about are results, but what they are able to track is time and, like you said, profits. In my job um, as an investigative journalist, I have worked remotely since I started at my company that's called the Capital Forum um, for almost four years now. And I've been remote the entire time. They're a, a young company, and I do think they're part of the kind of newer view of being able to give that flexible lifestyle and, and you know, rewarding results rather than time. So I do, it does seem to be a, tra a change that's coming about. One other thing I wanted to ask you, it seems that amongst the younger generations, men are expecting this kind of flexibility as well, and, and partly because they want to be more involved as fathers, but also partly because they just want to have a better quality of life in general. And, you know, to what extent do you think the demand coming from men will actually help women out as well? I mean, I have a cynical take that these changes will be easier if they're driven by men than by women. But do you, does that seem like a, a promising development to you? We, we love this question, um, and it's such an important point. So a couple thoughts on that. First of all, with millennials, we're seeing the highest rate of stay-at-home dads we've ever seen, and I think that's amazing. I think, you know, this generation has the opportunity to actually have the closest to sort of equal parenting that we've ever seen, and that's just tremendously exciting because children should never be the sole responsibility of a mother, you know, if there's two parents involved. And so I think that's one of the wonderful things that we're seeing in this generation. One of the challenges, as you mentioned, is I think the solution can't just come from women. So that recent study about women in the workplace that was released by McKinsey & Company and Sheryl Sandberg found that 94% of women have their networks be predominantly women-based networking groups. And so I actually remember this myself from my early career days. There were always these, like, women retreats and women sessions, and I was like, we're not the problem. Like, us talking about how we communicate and how we advocate for ourselves is not the problem. We're never going to solve the challenges unless we're all in the room together. 
So all that's to say is we're actually having men coming to our platform today, and that their numbers are increasing. We embrace them with open arms. I mean, our language and our positioning talks a lot more towards women, but we will accept men with open arms. And Annie and I always think about the fact that we're actually never going to solve the challenges of caring career women in the workplace unless this is a people solution and a society solution. Because the more we sort of ghettoize women in sort of a protected class of work, the harder it will be for them to actually truly succeed and achieve what they need to achieve. And so one thing we're really thrilled about is that the conversation is shifting and that men are participating in this conversation. And we absolutely support and encourage that. And we believe that's the only way real change is going to happen. Right. And just to add to that, I mean, men absolutely feel biased when they choose their children. Um, you know, they suffer at work. And we need to change that. Companies need to create support not just around women, but around caregiving in exactly the manner Anna just described. And of course, if part of our goal is for caregiving to be more equalized, and I know that's what Anne-Marie Slaughter has been focusing on recently, changing changing um, the view of caregiving, making it something that's valued for both men and women. It's, it becomes tricky, right? Because if you're saying, well, women need more flexible work because they're going to be doing all the caregiving, it's like we don't want to be accepting as a given that they have to do all the caregiving. At the right. same time, this is a reality that we're currently living in. Even myself, most of my friends, we're all modern women, like you said, thought we were in a post-feminist world. Then all of a sudden you have a child and you're like, wait a second. I thought this was yeah. going to be 50-50. <laughs> wait a right. second. This and, you know, part of it is biology when you're in, when they're babies and you're breastfeeding. It's really hard for the man to play the lead role in the newborn stage. And I think that often turns into these long-term patterns of where the woman, because she stays home from maternity leave, she becomes the expert on childcare. And, and it just keeps snowballing. You know, I, I, I'm really interested also in all the things that are happening with paternity leave and how that, you know, some things that have happened in Canada where they've done mandatory paternity leave um, in certain parts have actually resulted in more equal families in the long, in the, over the long term. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's the tricky part is obviously we want to be offering um, flexibility for women, but we also want to keep shifting the conversation to let's make work and caregiving equal. Let's shift back and forth as need be based on, you know, throughout the course of the careers of spouses or partners. Um, anyway, that's just, <laughs> I'm yeah, going on a little you're taking, long. You're taking the words right out of our mouth. I mean, that actually has been one of the more surprising lessons that we've learned since we started this company, which is the real importance of, of, paternity leave in dissolution to this problem long term. Um, I think that as a company, we remain very focused on starting a very um, authentic conversation with the group of people who feel this problem most acutely, who today are working women um, and working mothers. But absolutely, in our periphery, we need to be thinking about committing resources to stop talking about maternity leave, start talking about parental leave, making sure that we're not excluding men um, and eliminating them as experts in child care, because it certainly does, you know, the biological issue of breastfeeding and the fact that they end up, you know, the the male partner ends up going to work and then they kind of get out of touch and then it becomes fully your responsibility. I mean, as women, that means we need to let go and sometimes that's painful. But when you're thinking about how to better delegate your own life experience, certainly the person that's best able to pick up the slack is your male partner or your partner in general. Yeah, I think there's definitely a lot of changes that need to happen in the home as well. But I agree that it's women that are feeling this more acutely. Obviously, 
I really believe that caregiving is the reason that we have such a power imbalance and pay imbalance and, and the reason why so many fields continue to be male-dominated. I think caregiving is the number one number one reason for that. I'm excited that you guys are, are working on this. Let me hear a little bit about, you know, what are some of the things that you've been excited about with work in terms of um, successes that you've had so far? So it has been a wild, wild ride. So Annie and I actually only had our first conversation a little over a year ago, and we barely knew each other. We were connected by a friend for career advice and then had been both actually thinking about these challenges and even a potential solution or what was at the time the egg of the solution. And so we've built up this company so quickly. Um, So we only actually launched a job board about four months ago. And what's been so thrilling for us is if you can believe it, we've had over 600 applications to the jobs we've posted. We now boast over 3,000 members. We have over 50 company partners on board. So we're just so proud of the fact that the, the energy and the concept that we're sending out into the world has been picked up. And we are generally hearing so much positive energy back. Most companies, when they hear about what we do, are really excited. And in fact, early investors, their greatest concern was always, how are we going to get companies on board? And in fact, that's been incredibly easy, and that's one of the most exciting things for us is that companies are actually responding to this. Because frankly, we didn't know how those conversations were going to go, but they've gone really well. We're also really proud that and excited by the fact that the press is picking up on our story um, because I think it's very topical and it's very relevant, and we're definitely presenting sort of a different solution rather than just repackaging existing jobs or just project-based work. And so that's been the most exciting, you know, in terms of developments. Ultimately, I think for both Annie and I, the most exciting thing is that we actually just did this, that we took the leap and actually started a company. And, you know, we all sit by and we see things that we don't like and things that are unacceptable or areas where solutions are lacking, and we'll talk about it. And I was one of the people that for years talked about the challenges of women in work and women in leadership. And I think the thing we're most proud of is that we just took the leap and are trying to do our small part and trying to solve that and leave the world just a little bit better than the way we found it. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you sit around and you wonder if you're ever going to find that thing that really gets you excited every day. And certainly we have ups and downs on a daily and weekly basis. But just knowing that we were brave enough to go out there and put ourselves out there and take the risk is the most soulful and satisfying experience that the downs don't really matter. You know, you guys are probably the third or fourth podcast guests who've said that same thing that the thing that, that they're most proud the thing they're most proud of is that they started and that they did it so that's the good message is just do it just start it yeah. right I think that's my big lesson I think for years Annie makes fun of me now because for years I said I was not meant to be an entrepreneur and so it was like the staunch thing I had like people would say oh you have a great idea why don't you start a company I was like oh I'm not meant to be an entrepreneur and so it's sort of hilarious looking back that I even thought that because I think I finally found what I was meant to do and ultimately, it's just putting one foot in front of the other. And right. I think, like, you, you will never succeed if you don't commit to it. I think very early on, there was a lot of things that made us nervous. Like, would companies like this? Like, there's definitely competitors in the space. Um, this is sort of a novel idea, though. Like, all those things would have completely stopped us had we not just decided to do it and make the leap. And so I think for me, my biggest lesson is, like, if you commit, there's not, no problem you can't solve. But if you just kind of have one foot in, one foot out, you're never, the, those little challenges are actually going to scare you so much that you never do anything about it. 
And for me, it was the opposite. So I was actually trying to do everything. I was like <laughs> running a blog, trying to build. I, I built a business in my first maternity leave that I was seeking funding for before I met Anna. I was. I thought about building a philanthropy consulting firm, which is one of the reasons that I actually connected with Anna. I had so many different projects that I was trying to push forward, and I just didn't have any clarity about what it was that I wanted to do. And the setbacks, there were setbacks in each of those projects that I just couldn't quite overcome. And for me, finding Anna and finding a partner that I could, you know, that was my peer in every sense and a leader and somebody I could rely on um, and kind of weather storms with has been the game changer for me. And once we found this company and talked about this idea, it was immediate. I knew in my whole gut that this was what I would have to pursue and that I would have to put everything else aside. Um, And having that clarity was such a relief for me as a person. That's really awesome. I'm excited to watch your journey. And I noticed one other thing that you mentioned um, before was that, you know, when you were starting it out, there were competitors in the space. And I, I read something recently that said, that often daunts women more than men for starting a company that they'll say there's a competitor, there's a competitor. So I won't start it. And, you know, know, it's really, it's really interesting you say that because Anna and I only thought about quitting one time and it was um, one day about a year ago and we heard about a company who was doing something now it's totally different than what we do. But at the time it felt very similar and so we called each other. Anna was living in Vegas at the time. I mean, we, to build this company, she's relocated her whole family here. I, we both quit our, like, big jobs. And, you know, we felt a sense of real risk. And we were like, well, if somebody else is doing it, maybe we aren't needed here. And now we recognize and look at competitors as this marvelous opportunity to all contribute to the creation of the same market um, and that our voice is unique and their voice is unique and we don't really see the competitive angle as being so important anymore. But it totally, that was the only moment that we thought about giving up. Yeah, everyone's going to do it a slightly different way, right? Yeah. Well, and the fact that we, there's so many just generally copycat products out there that are exactly the same product, frankly, yeah. just with different branding, means that competitors can always you know, coexist, absolutely. The other thing that's been an interesting lesson to us, so, you know, my background's in business, and so even as a business strategist, one thing I, I don't think I quite really appreciate until I had a startup is that more competitors actually means there's more tension in the space, and you just have to actually stand out from the crowd. So as long as you actually have a better product or unique product, more competitors is not a problem. It actually brings more capital, more press, more customers to the space, and in some ways, you're actually much better able to be a fast follower and look at kind of what others have done and then forge your own path. Yeah, I had a guest um, named Elizabeth Dodson who founded a company called Home Zada that really organizes all of your home projects on, in a digital form, and uh, she made that exact same point that because she, her product was so unique, it was actually tricky because she had to not only get her name out and her brand out, but actually educate everyone about the, what the product even was. Um, so she was saying, you know, not having competitors was actually a bit of a challenge because it was a totally new um, product and service that no one even knew about. And that actually made it a little bit harder. So that's the flip side uh, that confirms what you were just saying. Totally. Or um, people at the party. Exactly. Um, One thing that I've been trying to figure out, you know, we're talking about the juggle and, you know, how overwhelming being a working mom can feel. 
Um, and I think these feelings of overwhelm are a huge problem that we all need to kind of collectively get rid of. And I'm wondering if you, in looking at work and in looking at strategies for making work more manageable, are there certain strategies that you guys have used to make your lives more easy um, or to manage those, those feelings of being overwhelmed? So first of all, this is something that both Anna and I have felt so intimately. And um, one of the things that we always say is that exhaustion is not a status symbol. I think that one of the real problems for our segment of women is that we all work so hard and are so dedicated that we think we're overwhelmed because we're not organizing well enough or we're not, there's something that we are not doing. And that's just not true. It's that we don't have enough support. So combating this exhaustion is very, very real. Um, and one of the things that I do from a business perspective is, first of all, I live and die by my calendar. I schedule everything. I schedule lunch. I schedule, basically schedule down to sleep so that I commit to myself that these things that are less measurable and easy to look over or skip are actually very, very important. And you know, when you have small children, there's so much unpredictability with your energy level and your schedule. You know, maybe you think your week is going really well and it's very manageable, but you have one big project um, or presentation, and then your kids keep you up all night that night, and it's really hard to recover from. So I try to make my business schedule and my social schedule as predictable as possible so that I can be sure that I can handle the fluctuations and unpredictability of having small children. My energy is in a really fragile place with a three-year-old and a one-year-old, so I really don't ever do events two nights in a row. I really stick close to home, make sure that I'm home early. I always get nine hours of sleep if I can, um, and it's just having the discipline to say, I don't need to take on this project at 10 o'clock. It can wait. My sleep is more important and my health is more important. Is there anything you would add to that? For me, I think it's around forcing myself to have some downtime. Um, I think a lot of us are sort of workaholics naturally. And for me, I, you know, what, I'll, what ends up happening if left to my own devices, I, I will just work so much because I'm passionate about what we're doing, particularly when you're have a startup, it's even harder sometimes to manage your schedule and to draw the boundaries. And you're just, I'm just so excited about what we're doing. And so that every email I answer, every phone call I do, every, you know, PowerPoint I write is incredibly important to me. And so sometimes it's really, really hard to stop. And so what I have to force myself to do is schedule those downtimes, essentially. So, for example, today is a Friday. I'm picking up my son from school, and I'm offline. Like, that's it. I pick him up at 3.45. We go get an ice cream. We go to the park. And that's really important to me because I know I work so intensely that unless I sort of – and same way Annie said, you know, living and by, dying by her schedule, for me, it's just, like, ensuring I know the times that I am off and I am – uh, anytime I pick up my phone, I remind myself that I'm supposed to be off right now, and I try to enforce it as much as possible. Pretty terrible about it today, but I'm trying to be a lot better, and I actually think your kids keep you honest. Because my son is always like, Mommy, you told me you're not supposed to be doing the working right now. And so help, he, has, <laughs> he helps enforce the boundaries as well. I think um, scheduling in that downtime is something that is so important, and I know I myself am working on that. Um, one thing that I've been focusing on also for the listeners of this podcast is finding something that they enjoy. I had a women killing it challenge that was called find your joy. And it was about finding just one thing that is just for you and for no one else. 
and scheduling it in. And I know it's hard for people to find the time to put that in. And it's even when you're a working mom, it's really hard to even imagine, you know, when do I have time to do something that's just for me, just for my enjoyment, not even, okay, self-care, that's a whole nother category. You know, you need to keep your body healthy and all that. But I'm talking about not even like, okay, this is a exercise to keep me fit. Okay. That's for you. But that's, I'm talking about just pure joy and pleasure, not for a function. (laughs) So for me, I I finally started riding my bike. I got a bike and I started riding a bike and I wasn't doing it for fitness. And it was just so transformational for me. And when I don't have time to do a bike ride by myself, I bring my daughter on a bike ride. Um, you know, and so I'm really trying to encourage women to find something that's just for their joy and pleasure, because for me, it's part of orienting toward yourself and realizing that, you know, our entire orientation of pleasing others instead of ourselves does us a disservice in our careers as well. You guys are in a real intense spot with small children and startup. Uh, mm-hmm. t- <laughs> My children have gotten a little bit older, six and nine. I will tell you, it's way easier, much less sleep deprivation. <laughs> Um, much less care unless you, you know, fall into that trap of scheduling every moment of your kids' lives, which I have not, I have resisted strongly, um, so that I'm not spending every, you know, they can, older kids can be harder if you're spending all of your time taking them from one activity to the next. But, um, (laughs) um, have you guys found ways to build in time for yourselves at all? Or do you feel that you're kind of overlooked right now? You know, it's an interesting question. So there are times when it's more intense and less intense. So my younger son actually has special needs. And in in periods of his life, I'm just like an afterthought because I have to commit to my business, commit to my son, and commit to both of my children, but especially when there are extraneous circumstances or extra doctor's appointments or surgeries or whatever it is. But that said, I'm actually really great at prioritizing myself. So if we have a really busy day and I need to write two hours of emails or write an article or whatever it is, I totally remove myself to an environment where I'm really happy. And that might mean a great hotel lobby bar with excellent wine and a great cheese plate. But whatever it means to put myself in an environment where I'm comfortable and happy And on the weekends lately, I've been hiring a babysitter so that I can go do one hour of something that is really meaningful to me. And it's not an errand. It's going and walking around the park or just taking time to myself because without it, I just, I work myself to the bone to a place where it's not healthy for me or good for any of the people or businesses I'm looking after. And I can't say I've, I've found mine yet. I was going to ask if wine qualifies. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be good enough, right? <laughs> um, because, well, having moved cross country and, you know, we really only unpacked about a month ago. We're still getting settled. It's been a little bit crazy. But I've actually, I think it's wonderful that you asked because this is a great reminder for me to find those things. I think right now for me it's been that glorious time after your child goes to bed in the evening where you can read a book or watch a TV show or binge. And watch. I just read the entire Harry Potter series. <laughs> Annie totally out of me. I had not, I missed the entire Harry Potter train when it was cool. So I'm very late to that party. I picked up actually the first book when we were flying back to Vegas to pack up our house because we've been going back and forth a lot. And subsequent to that, read the entire series over the next month with glasses of wine in the evening. And so that has been my diversion. So I, maybe I just need to find my new series. Maybe that's what it is. <laughs> 
I'm reading the Nightingale and I read like 10 pages per night and it's the most depressing 10 pages, but at least I'm not on a device. Right. Yeah. The devices, I feel like avoiding devices is definitely um, a challenge, but a very um, wise, uh, wise goal in order for, to reclaim some time for your own, to nourish your own self. So we're running a little uh, short on time. So I wanted to see, are there any, you know, lessons that you've learned, um, through your journey starting work or through, you know, the deep dive that you've done looking at women in work um, that you would like to share with the readers in terms of kind of things that you wish you would have known sooner in your career? So I think one thing that we have learned um, in two ways, when we joined the workforce and now that we are raising dollars from the investment community, that gender bias is real. And that to be a woman who rises to the top, you need to be better than everybody else around you by multiples. And I think that inspires us because we know we're capable of that. Um, but it is disappointing in both of those lessons and also, frankly, watching the way that um, the election is going right now. I can speak for myself, you know, seeing the way that women are discussed and treated. It just is obvious how much further we still have to go. And I think the onus is on us to change that. So, you know, instead of being discouraged by that problem, I think it's been really inspiring for us to recognize it and live through it because there's nothing that we like better than rising to a challenge. Um, But it's it's hard to know. I I totally agree with Annie. In fact, I have the same one, which is sometimes you have to accept the hard truth of what you're hearing and sort of what's under that surface, because we've definitely had some very challenging investor conversations. And we walk away thinking, we gave a really great pitch. If anything, that was like our most on-point pitch or kind of the best way we've ever positioned the product and our traction. And yet you get a lot of like fairly critical feedback and sometimes very aggressive feedback. And when something is your baby, it's very hard to hear that oftentimes, Mm -hmm. particularly when you feel like something that he hasn't heard you. But I think my biggest lesson for other entrepreneurs and like, you know, as other people can think about doing things like this is to actually stick to your guns. Like if there's something bad that's happening, first of all, name it. But second, don't let other biases and kind of a lack of understanding of the market, of the business, of you as a person affect you in any way. And it's actually very hard. I, I'm actually really working on this actively. This is my new thing I'm working on. It's not letting, you know, somebody's critical feedback that frankly hurt a 30-minute pitch, if that, affect kind of, you know, your day-to-day feelings because you have so many ups and downs. And I will say the highs are so much higher than the lows. And so it's important to just kind of refocus on kind of what the bigger picture is. And so for me, that's been the biggest lesson. I did have an, a previous episode with um, Lynn Perkins, who is the CEO of Urban Sitter. And she yeah. said that when she was raising money with investors in Silicon Valley, um, they didn't necessarily inherently understand the value proposition because they weren't feeling it because they were all uh, predominantly right. men. Oh my God. So they would go, they would go home and talk to their wives and their wives would say, Oh yeah, it's really a pain to get a babysitter. And then they would understand it. The other thing she said is what they did was they really went out and got a lot of traction before they went to investors. And that really helped, you know, they saw that the investors could see the numbers of how many people were using the platform, but they had to really bootstrap it and, you know, put their own money in for a long time or for a, a period of time before they went to the investors, which is kind of sad because, you know, a service that was serving a male need wouldn't have that same um, difficult, you know, obstacle that they would have to show traction before they could raise the money. 
Um, That's great. So, you, you know, know, we've been... We've been really lucky because we still are doing really great with investors given our, our place um, in, in a, as an early stage company, but it still is amazing to see how many people hear the phrase women in work and they think, oh, cute, she can be a part-time office manager or a secretary and, you know, or you should humanize your product with um, low-income wage earners because they don't see the women leaders who are ready to take on real responsibilities in the context of caregiving as human. Um, and that is a really disappointing lesson to learn, and it means that you have to become more and more effective at communicating and making sure that your story is clear and your purpose is clear, and also finding the right partners. I mean, I think that in general, there's a really interesting trend in the venture community right now where people are becoming more and more, because of that value shift we were talking about earlier, um, more and more interested in funding socially innovative solutions, so not just new delivery services, but, you know, companies that are really trying to improve a social bottom line in the context of a highly profitable revenue-driving company. Um, so we're getting there, you know, but we are still pioneering. And you think, just like we said before, when we thought we were living in this post-feminist world, you realize what it means to be a pioneer and how uncomfortable it can be at times, but I would, would never want to do anything else. Well, the election for sure has made it clear that this is definitely not a post-feminist world. Um, I think it's been you a real hard, it's been a real <laughs> hard week for all of us. You know, I, I'm 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 like I'm thinking to myself that Donald Trump could be an angel in disguise <laughs> because, <laughs> because he's exposed that this is not a post-feminist world, and I think thinking that it's a post-feminist world when it's not is a disservice to women. So, you know. It could be, oh, there could be a silver lining to it all. Yeah, um, <laughs> we're all being called upon to initiate the change that we need to see to get equality for ourselves and our daughters and our sons, frankly. So we feel like this is the right time and a good time despite the challenges. And you said the onus is on us, but I think, you know, the onus is on everyone, men as well, right? Yeah. Well, I think thankfully, sort of the outpouring of criticism, even from his own party, regardless of who anybody's voting for, I mean, yeah. it's just the facts are the facts, but the fact that there was an outpouring of criticism, I think, you know, helps me feel that there's a light at the end of this tunnel. Right. Um, but we have so far to go, and it's just, it's been shocking in the last few kind of election cycles just to watch the way the articles cover male politicians versus female politicians and the focus on a female politician not being soft enough, human enough, what she's wearing, what her hair looks like, Versus, like, who has ever, I mean, other than, I guess, our current male candidate's hair, male, you know, the male candidate's hair is usually not a big topic of discussion. But it, it, it's pretty shocking that this is what we're talking about and kind of the frame of reference. Um, and I think it's an American thing also. You know, if you look at the rest of the developed world, and there's so many other countries in Europe that have had female, you know, leaders of those countries, and we're a little bit behind it. It's absolutely time for the U.S. to catch up. All right. Well, we could talk about this for another hour, I'm sure. Yeah, um, yes, because. <laughs> I'm very excited about what you guys are doing. If our listeners want to check you out, the website is Say Work, right? S-A-Y-W-E-R-K.com. Exactly. Right? Please do. We have a bunch of jobs. We're putting new ones up every day. Um, and there's an open email address on our website, which is just hello at saywork.com. And we love to hear people's stories, ideas, outreach. We answer every single email. So I would love to hear from anybody that wants to get plugged in. All right. Well, I'm very excited and I can't wait to uh, 
watch your company grow even even larger. Thanks for coming today. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Sally. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe to our podcast, rate and review us on iTunes, and most importantly, tell a friend about us. Thanks for joining us.